remain standing for the sermon text, the epistle lesson from Romans 7. I'm going to start in verse 13, preach on verses 13 and 14, but I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter to give us some context before we get started. So listen carefully to God's inspired word from Romans 7. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal or fleshly, sold under sin. <clears throat> for, what I, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We need your help again, O oh God, to understand your word to believe it and to do it and so we ask again for your spirit who wrote these words who inspired these words through the apostle paul to be in us and among us leading us guiding our thoughts and our hearts into truth into submission to your word into love for christ and and his word we pray this in jesus name amen Please be seated. Today may feel a little bit more like a Bible study or Sunday school lesson than a sermon because we need to do some, some digging and some turning, maybe in our Bibles even, to figure some things out, to get oriented to this passage before we continue walking through it in the coming weeks. You see, the, the second half of Romans 7 that I just read is one of the most highly debated passages in the New Testament. And when I, you know, so when I say the second half of Romans 7, I'm, I'm specifically, I mean, the verses 14 to 25. And, and the debate, the discussion began in the early church and it continues through today. So what's the debate about? Well, it's complex, and we're not going to go into all of the questions that have been raised and all of the theories. I think many of them, most of them, are, are barely worth even mentioning in a commentary, much less in a sermon. But what's the debate about? It has to do with who's, who Paul's referring to in this passage. Is he talking about himself? 
And, and if so, is he talking about himself when he was an unbeliever? Or is the second half of Romans 7 about Paul's experience as a believer after he was converted? Is it pre-conversion or post-conversion? Is the inner struggle that Paul describes in this paragraph the struggle of someone who's been born again? Someone who has the Spirit of God living in him? Or is Paul relating the internal conflict of someone who is unregenerate, someone who is still in the flesh, someone who has not experienced the new birth, salvation, someone who is not in Christ. Well, if you just, if you just look at the text and you don't, get, if, you know, you don't want to complicate things, the, the most obvious answer right on the surface is that Paul is talking about himself. And... You know, he's using I in the present tense, and, and therefore he's talking about himself as a mature Christian, as an apostle, as the author of the words that he's writing, as the author of the book of Romans. Paul keeps referring to this person as I and me and myself. So if we take the words and the grammar at face value, then we should conclude that Paul is talking about his own experience, his own struggle, his own war within. I do not do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. And There's this divided I, divided self. But at the same time, it also seems, at least to many, as though Paul is describing what some have called a carnal Christian, if there is such a thing, someone who's regularly defeated by sin. And surely that doesn't describe Paul, right? The Apostle Paul was not a carnal Christian. Surely Paul never would have said that a born-again believer could experience this kind of, dis, this kind of uh, defeat and disobedience and inner conflict. We can't do what he wants to do. Is that really... How Paul viewed himself or the Christian life. Surely Paul never would have said it was normal for a child of God who is in Christ, who has been renewed by the Spirit, to be so overcome by sin as often as the person in Romans 7 seems to be. So do you see the dilemma? What do we do with this? Well, you'll see that the sermon stops, uh, the, the sermon text officially stops at verse 14. That's because we'll only consider verses 13 and 14. We ended verse 12 last time. We'll only consider 13 and 14 in detail today. I, I will have us look briefly at other verses later in the chapter to help us understand verse 14 in particular, to see, to see how those later verses not just in Romans 7, but particularly in Romans 7, inform our understanding of who Paul's talking about in Romans 7. But we won't look in depth at anything beyond verse 14 until next time. Before we get too far into the second half of this chapter, we need to settle in our minds whether Paul is talking about the internal war of someone in Christ or the internal war of someone who has not yet been converted to Christ. Well, let's start back in verse 13. Verse 13 is a bridge. It's a, it's, a ver, it's a bridge verse between the first half of Romans 7 and the second half of Romans 7. It, it, and verse 13 draws a conclusion from the previous discussion. I'll go on your left. From the previous discussion and introduces a new discussion, a new paragraph. And as Paul is wont to do, he starts off verse 13 with one of his questions that he knows is in the mind of others. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Did, in other words, did, is, did what is good become bad? And what's the good thing Paul's referring to here? Maybe, maybe I should have read the entire chapter for the context we need. Well, the good here is the law. Remember, Paul's been talking about the law and how it's good it's not the culprit. It's sin. So, a, but a person might conclude from the previous verses still that the law, okay, we, we hear you saying the law is not sinful. You answered that question, but maybe it's the cause of death. It's responsible for this death. And specifically in verse 10, Paul ha had said that 
the commandment which was meant to bring life resulted in death. And at the end of verse 11, he said that sin killed him through the commandment. So sin is using the law, the righteous standards of God, to show us how sinful we are, to bring us to the point of death. And does this mean the law, which is a good thing, became death to Paul? And Paul forcefully rejects this idea. May it never be. Don't even think about it that way, Paul says. But sin, he goes on, but sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, through the law, so that through the commandment, sin might become exceedingly sinful, so that sin might be revealed as sinful. So we'll see it for what it is. That's what the law does, remember, from previous texts and sermons. So the culprit is is not the law, but sin. Sin used the law as an instrument. Sin uses the law as a tool, as a weapon to to bring about death in Paul. Now, now sin is using this in a sinister way, in a negative sense. it's, It's against us. But God uses it for our good to bring us to Christ because it helps us to see our need for a Savior. But the point here is that the law is not sinful, nor is it the cause of death. The problem is sin. Sin is sinful, and sin is the cause of death. Let's not lose focus of that. So in this transitional verse, Paul wants us to understand the sinfulness of sin. He wants you to understand the sinfulness of your sin. Me to understand the sinfulness of my sin. Because Paul had come to understand more and more the sinfulness of his sin. In in taking a good thing, God's law, and using it for evil purposes, sin shows itself to be utterly, exceedingly wicked, sinful. The law is fully blameless and wholly praiseworthy. Sin alone is to blame. At the same time, even though the commandments of God are good and holy and spiritual, they're powerless against the forces of sin. The law isn't the solution. It's not the problem, but it's also not the solution to human wickedness. In fact, Paul's already argued earlier in this letter that God's commandments magnify sin. The law, when it comes and it tells you, don't do that, you should be doing this. This is God's righteous standard. Be holy as I am holy. When, when the law comes and, and, and does that, it stirs up, Paul says, our sinful desires, making our problem even worse. It doesn't create sin, but it magnifies, arouses, stirs up sin that's already there. So, so the law is like a magnifying glass that makes the sinfulness of our sin more visible, easier to see. The, the, or, or we could think of the law as like a spotlight that exposes the depths of sinfulness that you couldn't see before. It was there. God saw it. But maybe you didn't until the light of the law shone on it. So the law is no savior. It's spiritual, but it can't save you or sanctify you. It can't make you holier, more like Jesus. Our spiritual predicament is too profound. Your spiritual predicament is too profound for the law. Then in verse 14, Paul begins his exploration of the depths and layers of human wretchedness. And I I read the whole passage. But it it begins in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I am of the flesh sold under the power or the influence of sin. So who is the I? in verse 14 and and then in following, all the way through verse 25. What kind of person does this paragraph describe? Whose experience is this? Is it that of an unbeliever? 
or a believer? And if it's a believer, is it an immature believer who's always defeated by sin? Or is it a mature believer who has become acutely aware of how sinful he is? Well, I'm going to give, give you my answer right here at the top, at the outset. And then I'm going to try to prove it, to show you from Scripture. I've probably already given it away, what I think. The I in this passage is Paul as a Christian. And not only as a Christian, but as a very mature Christian. Roman, Romans 7 expresses the inner turmoil of a believer. Not a believer who is becoming more sinful, but a believer who is becoming more aware of his sinfulness, even as he is growing in holiness. And those two, two things always go together. As you grow in holiness, you become more aware of your unholiness. This is a believer who has gotten so close to the light that he can see better than ever how idolatrous his heart is. Even when other people can't see it. When you make progress in the Christian life, as you grow in grace and godliness, one of the results, one of the byproducts, more than a byproduct, one of the, one of the fruits is that you're able to see with increasing clarity how, just how big your problem is and how deep it goes. How wide it is, how high it is, how deep it is, how gnarly it is, how messed up you are. Paul knows how messed up he is. One of the ways God keeps us humble as believers is that as we grow in righteousness, in personal holiness, God continually at the same time shows us that our unrighteousness, our unholiness, was even worse than we thought. And we thought the last time we had that experience, we had come, you know, we, we had really learned a lot. Well, it's, it's even way worse than that. And the next time you'll learn that it's way worse than you think it is now. It, it can feel like, you know, that process, it, it can make you feel like you're not actually making progress. Because when you make spiritual progress in, in one sin, we'll say, to simplify, you know, you make progress in this one sin, the light of God's holiness reveals two more sins that you weren't even seeing or that you didn't take seriously. So Paul isn't just teaching us about the sinfulness of sin. He's also teaching us about the sinfulness of saints, of Christians, including himself. And, and by saints, I just mean Christians. I'm not talking about those that the Roman Catholic Church has turned into saints. In, in the Bible, a saint is a believer. If you're a believer, you're a saint. Saint means holy one. Saints are those who have been made holy through the blood of Christ and are being made holy through the Spirit of Christ, to be more like Jesus. But Paul's point in verse 14, through the rest of the chapter, is that when God saves us, when He, when he, turns, us, when he turns us into saints, when He makes us saints, we don't stop sinning. The theologies that say that are destructive lies. In fact, Paul's teaching us in this passage that the more mature of a Christian you become, the more you will be aware of, of the wickedness and the corruption that lives in your heart and mind and body and that works its way out regularly. Well, how do we know this? How, how do we know from the text, more specifically, that Paul's referring to himself as a mature saint in verse 14 and following. What, what evidence is there that the eyes and me's and myself in verses 14 to 25 refer to Paul as a born-again Christian, as the apostle who's writing this book, who's being led by the Spirit? Well, let's consider six reasons. Number one... And I'm following the handout here, if you have it. Number one, verses 
14 to 25 are in the present tense. The, the verbs are in the present tense. I'm going to have to reach back to grammar class. It's happening now. As Paul's writing it, he says, I am of the flesh. I do not understand what I am doing. I do not practice what I want to do. All present tense. I do what I am hating right now. And so on. All the way through verse 25. I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh I am serving the law of sin. I didn't count how many verbs there are, but there are a lot, and they're in the present tense. There's a future in there we'll look at later. But he's looking at that future reality from the present moment. This is important. This is not just a nerdy grammatical point. It's important because it it's actually tells us what Paul's doing. Because in the previous paragraph, in verses 7 to 12, Paul consistently used past tense verbs to describe how sin and the law functioned in his life as an unbeliever. You can see that in your Bibles. For example, glance up at verse 8. I'll read from the handout. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced, past tense, in me all manner of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, past tense. And I died, past tense. And I found that the commandment which was meant to bring life resulted in my death. See all these past tense verbs? For sin, verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, sin killed me. All past tense. So the shift from purely past tense verbs in verses 7 to 12, where he's talking about himself as an unbeliever, a pre-conversion, to purely present verb tense, uh, pre to purely uh, present tense verbs, in verses 14 to 15 is very strong evidence that the I in the second half of Romans 7 is not Saul the Pharisee, but Paul the Apostle. And, it's, and it isn't Paul when he was a new, immature believer. This is Paul in the present. Paul, the author of the book of Romans. Number two. The I can't be describing an unbeliever because only saints hate sin. And the way Paul hates his sin. Verse 15 says that I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Unbelievers love their sins. They, they may know that it's bad for them in some way. They may even try to get help. They may want to stop sinning at some level because for, for a variety of reasons. It hurts them socially, vocationally. It messes with their self-image. But at the end of the day, a person who doesn't know Christ, who is not vitally connected to Jesus in union with Christ, he enjoys his idols. Because that's all he has. Only Christians despise indwelling sin. Only genuine believers view indwelling sin as truly the enemy. To be fought against tooth and nail. You see, Paul had experienced the new birth, which meant that his heart had new loves and new hates. New loves and new hates. If you've been born again, God has given you an affection for Christ and a hatred for your sin that's impossible, that does not exist in those who are not saved. Your spirit-empowered hatred of sin doesn't make you sinless, but it does cause you to sin less. It doesn't make you sinless, but it, it does cause you to sin less. Saints never become sinless in this life, but the spirit in you and the, the spirit in saints is always driving them toward holiness, always causing them to sin less. A true hatred of sin always leads to less sinning. 
That's the kind of hatred that Paul's talking about. Number three, only saints love God's law. Paul says in verse 22, For in my inner self, in my inner person, I delight in God's law. Here Paul's saying that his love for the commandments of God is not superficial. It's not just a a cultural thing because I'm a Jew. No, Paul's delight in God's law exists at the very core of his being. It's in the innermost chambers of his person. This means he doesn't just love to talk about God's righteous standards or to preach them. He also delights in doing them. You can't say that you love God unless you love his law. And you can't say that you love his law unless you obey it more and more all the time. Paul, Paul, let me point out what Paul's doing here with his language briefly. Paul, Paul uses language that, that takes us back to God's new covenant promises in the Old Testament. So, God, so Paul's taking us back to the Old Testament. And let's just look at one place. You don't turn there. But God promised in Jeremiah 31 that in the new covenant, when when Jesus would come, when the Messiah would come, when the new covenant came, he promised, God promised that he would write his law on the minds and on the hearts of his people in a way that had never happened before. Other passages talk about how the Spirit of God would do this. The Spirit of God would, He would give His Spirit to us and the Spirit of God would give us new spirits. But this language of writing God's law on our hearts and in our minds is in Jeremiah 31. Well, notice in, in Romans 7, verse 32, Paul's saying that God has written the law on His heart, on His inner person, on His inner self so that now Paul delights in meditating on it and doing it. See, that was the promise in the Old Testament that God would cause his people to love it and do it. And so when Paul's talking about this, he's not just saying, I really, really like the law and it's a great idea. He's saying that God has fulfilled his promise of old in me. He says something similar in verse 25, with my mind, see that word mind, I myself serve the law of God. Well, that's because God had written God had written his law on Paul's mind as he promised to do in Jeremiah 31. So the person described in the second half of Romans 7 is a new covenant believer who has the law in his heart and his mind, who loves it and therefore does it, which is what God promised. Now Paul admits that he doesn't always do it. He doesn't always do what he most wants to do. He doesn't always obey God's commandments. He's especially aware of his failure to keep the 10th commandment, to desire what, he, what, it's not, what God has not given him, to long for things that are not his. Nevertheless, as a true believer, obedience to God is the deepest desire of Paul's truest self. We can put it that way. It's, his, it's the deepest desire of his truest self. And Paul looks forward to the day when his holy desires and his holy delight, it's already there now, his holy delight in God's law will be perfected, brought to completion. One day he will be undivided in his soul, in his heart, in his affections. His, his hatred of sin, sin and his love for God and his law and his Christ will be pure and perfect. Do you long for that day? Is that what you sit around and think about and fantasize about that day? We'll see, that's, that's where Paul's mind was. That's where his heart was, especially when we get to the end of this passage. So only saints hate their sins so much that it leads them to sin less. And only saints love, love the law so much that it leads them to obey God's will more. Number four. Only saints give thanks 
for their deliverance. And this does take us to the end of the chapter. In verse 25, Paul thanks God for his deliverance from sin. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Body of death is just another term for flesh, sinful nature, old Adam. Who's going to deliver me from this miserable situation that I'm in, that I just described? Verse 25, where does he turn? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only a believer can talk like this and think like this and hope like this, anticipate like this, eagerly expect like this. Because only a believer can look forward to the day when Jesus will rescue him from the presence of sin inside. If, if Jesus has not rescued you already from sin's penalty and, and from its dominating power, dictatorship over you well then, then you this this won't apply to you. you won't be eagerly anticipating the day when Jesus will also rescue you from sin's presence from sin's influence altogether the, those two things go hand in hand unbelievers don't long for the day when their idols will be destroyed demolished forever Unbelievers fantasize about living forever with their idols, with their earthly-minded fantasies. But Paul can't wait for the day when Jesus will rescue him from the idolatrous enemy that lives inside of him and that wins out and these skirmishes more often than he would like. The mark of a true believer is a deep desire. One of the marks of a true believer is the, a deep desire to finally get rid of every last bit of wretchedness and to be, and to be completely holy. Do you think about that as often as you think about all of the... other blessings in heaven, like how big your mansion will be or something like that. Do you think about being in the presence of God before Jesus, face to face with your Savior without any sin? Christians long for that final day of deliverance, and they give thanks for that day in anticipation of it in advance. So, do you, so, so that's the question. Do you look forward to the day when the Spirit will complete the work that, if you're a Christian, He's already begun? Do, do you think about it that day when everything you think and do and say will glorify God and magnify Christ? Do you long to be rescued from the presence and lingering influence and power of sin? Paul did. Only mature believers do. This is the longing of a genuine Christian and a mature, genuine Christian at that. Number five, only saints become increasingly aware of their sinfulness in a way Paul, in the way Paul did. Now, the second half of Romans 7 demonstrates an awareness of sin that Paul lacked when he was a Pharisee, before he was a Christian. As a Pharisee, he considered himself to be a righteous lawkeeper. He wouldn't have told you that he had never sinned. But in Philippians 3, Paul says with regard to the, right, to the you know, righteousness that a person can earn by obeying the law, I was blameless. In that regard, I was on it. So there's a drastic difference between what Saul of Tarsus, the, the Pharisee, believed about himself before he became a Christian and what Paul the Apostle says about himself here in Romans 7.14 and the rest of the chapter. The difference can only be explained 
this self-view can only be explained as a work of the Spirit in Paul's life. And there are also indications outside of Romans 7 that Paul became increasingly aware of his sinfulness, of his wretchedness. I'm going to give you three references here. We're not going to turn to them, but if you're a note taker, you'll probably want to write these down and go back. You've, you've, if you've been in church very long, you've heard these verses. We're going to trace Paul's spiritual growth in this area, chronologically. The first verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 9, where Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. Now, Paul, let's think about our timeline here. Paul wrote this in the mid-50s, okay, the A.D. 50s. He'd been a Christian for over two decades at this point, probably closer to three. It's not false humility. He's not just, you know, saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the worst. He believes it. He truly believed that he had more sins to be saved from than the other apostles, more to be forgiven than the rest, because he had become aware of his sinfulness. Okay, so that's 1 Corinthians 15. A handful of years later, so now we're in the early 60s, 60, 61, something like that. Paul's in prison in Rome. That's where he wrote a, a few of the books of the Bible. One of them was Ephesians. The second reference is Ephesians 3, verse 8. There Paul says, I am the very least of not the apostles this time. I am the very least of all the saints. So do you see the progression here? Some might conclude that Paul's going from bad to worse. You're going, you're going in the wrong direction, Paul. You're supposed to be getting better. So, I mean, in AD 55, you said you're the least of the apostles. It was, it was you know, you were that bad. But now in AD 61, you're, you're worse than all the Christians, all the saints. And there's some pretty bad saints out there. But it doesn't stop there. As Paul continues to study the scriptures and commune with God, he becomes increasingly aware of his sin. A few years later, near the end of his life, within a few, few years of his death, somewhere in the mid, early to mid-60s, Paul wrote his two final books, inspired books, letters, First and Second Timothy. And the third reference is First Timothy Chapter 1, verse 12. Probably all of you or almost all of you have heard this verse. It's where Paul says that he is the chief of all sinners. So what are we to conclude from this? Was, was Paul going backward in his Christian life? Was he a backslider? Is he the, is he the carnal, the... the poster boy for the carnal Christian? No, it's actually the, the very opposite of that, of course. As Paul gets closer to God, he's able to see more and more of his moral filth. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And as you get closer to the pure light of God's holiness... The contrast between your wretchedness and God's righteousness becomes greater and greater. Because the bright light of His holiness enables you to see with increasing clarity the sinfulness of your sin. So only saints hate sin so much that it leads them to sin less. Only saints love the law so much that it leads them to obey more. Only saints give thanks for the future deliverance from this presence of sin in our lives. Only saints become increasingly aware of their sin, of the sinfulness of their sin. And finally, number six, only saints experience the war within. Only genuine believers are engaged in the spiritual warfare described, and that we'll look at 
later in future sermons in Romans 7, if you're a Christian, there's a war raging within you between your flesh and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a fierce war. A war that doesn't exist in unbelievers. Now, unbelievers have consciences. They can feel bad about things. But, but the war, the spiritual warfare here does not exist in unbelievers. Paul addresses this war between the flesh and the spirit in another letter that he wrote, Galatians 5. And again, you might want to write this down and reflect on it because this is a, a parallel passage to Romans 7. In, in, in Galatians 5, he's talking, about, he's talking to Christians, to the churches. And he says in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. They are at war with each other so that you don't do what you want. You hear that terminology in Galatians 5 that he use, uses also in Romans 7? You do not do what you want. This is the internal conflict of a Christian who has both the flesh and the spirit. This is spiritual warfare. If you're a believer, there's a friend inside of you and an enemy inside of you. The spirit is your friend and the sinful nature that you inherited from Adam, your flesh, is your enemy. And these two are at war. So your main enemy isn't outside of you. It's, it's not the, the politicians that you hate. It's not the influences of the world. The main enemy isn't outside of you, it's inside of you. Your main problem isn't the world or the devil. Those are enemies. But if the world and the devil didn't exist, you'd still have a universe of corruption to contend with just right in here. You have more than enough enemy forces inside of you to keep you busy in battle for the rest of your life. If you've been born again, you know this war. Deep down in your inner person, you love God. You delight in His Word. You want to magnify Christ, whether in life and in death. You want to seek first the kingdom of God. You want your life to matter for eternity. You want God's glory. You love Jesus more than your sin. But as you make forward progress in your walk with Christ... As you get closer to the light of God's holiness, sometimes you find yourself riding the, the, break, riding the emergency brake, or perhaps even trying to shift into reverse. Instead of walking in the Spirit, who is your friend, you side with the flesh, who is your enemy. And this enemy within you is very interested in glorifying you. I like how Paul, I, I, back in Galatians 5 that I read, I like how Paul uses the singular desire of the flesh. A lot of translations translate it plural, the desires of the flesh, even the more literal ones, because it just kind of reads awkwardly. But it's singular. It's the desire of the flesh in Galatians 5, 16. And, and it's okay to, you know, he could have said desires and it wouldn't have been wrong. And elsewhere it does say desires plural, but... There, there's really one desire of the flesh, and that desire is to please and honor self rather than God. The enemy within is you. The enemy within is the ego, which is why Jesus and Paul regularly have to tell us that the self, the I, the me, the myself must die. I must be crucified with Christ so that Christ and His Spirit can live in me and through me. You see, the enemy within is self-seeking, self-glorifying, self-exalting, self-praising, self-centered, self-interested, 
self-gratifying, self-promoting, self-preoccupied, self-flattering, self-absorbed. Did I say self-centered? When you're walking by the Spirit, you're self-forgetful. When you're carrying out the desire of the flesh, you're self-focused. There's always an easy way to tell which side of the war you're fighting on at any given moment. Self-focus produces anxiety and and bondage. Self-forgetfulness produces freedom and joy. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As we transition to application, I want to draw your attention to the way Paul words that phrase, that middle phrase in verse 14. Notice that he doesn't say, I am in the flesh. And verse 14, Paul's very careful with his language not to say that the believer is in the flesh. You can't be in the flesh and in Christ at the same time. Romans 8.8 8 states it most clearly so that there's no debate. There's no, it's indisputable. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's one or the other. You're in the Spirit or still in the flesh. To be in the flesh is to... not it, Being in the flesh doesn't just mean that you're sinning. Being in the flesh is to live in the flesh, to swim in the flesh, to be immersed in the flesh, to revel in the flesh. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5, that we were, past tense, in the flesh. Christians cannot be in the flesh, but they are certainly, as Paul puts it here in the middle of verse 14, we are certainly of the flesh. Saints no longer dwell in the flesh, but the flesh still dwells in them. Those who are in the flesh are dominated and tyrannized and ruled by the flesh, but Christians are of not in the flesh, but of the flesh, which means we are still influenced by the flesh. But it no longer reigns over us as a dictator, as Paul puts it in previous passages. The spirit and the flesh both dwell in the believer, but the spirit now is the dominating force. Since power has been demoted, it's been kicked out of the main floor of the house, but it still lingers in the basement. If you're a Christian, you've escaped the dominating power of sin. But no one in this life escapes completely from sin's power and influence. Not this side of heaven. We don't live in sin, but we live with it. And even in some sense, under it. If you're a believer, then you're a saint who sins. Sometimes you're a saint who sins grievously, seriously. And this will be the case as long as you exist in in this mortal body. You won't be delivered completely from indwelling sin in this life. And so again, I want to bring us back to Paul's main point about the problem. Your biggest problem will never be what's around you or beside you. You can't address your sin problem by changing your environment. Moving out in to the, to the woods or into the mountains and getting away from influences. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment and they still allowed sin to well up inside of them. Your main en- enemy, your, your main issue is what lives in you. It's what you carry around with you wherever you go. It never goes on vacation, never takes a break, never calls a truce, it, it, it goes with you when you travel, when you get on a plane, when you get in your car, it goes with you to, to work, it goes to the store with you, it comes home with you, it goes to bed with you, it gets up with you. Your main enemy is your flesh, your indwelling sin, your old man, old person, old Adam, your body of death. It's the old you who still wants to sit on the throne even after it's been removed, so it can run things. It's your ego to which you must die daily. 
It's your own ambitions which you must often kill. <clears throat> we're not slaves of our sin as we once were. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a slave. That's not the right way of thinking about it. But we're still in some sense under its power and influence, which causes us to carry out the desire of the flesh, which is self-focused, self-worshipping, self-indulgent, self-promoting. This problem is lodged inside of us, and we can't rid ourselves of it entirely, but we can and we must mount an attack against it. And that's the difference between a true believer and someone who only claims to be a believer. So how do saints mount that attack? How do we mount this attack? How do we respond to our indwelling sin? How do you fight the enemy within? Well, first, you despise it. You hate its guts. You don't coddle it or caress it. You don't feed it or fondle it. It's a venomous snake that is out to kill you, so you must crush its head. It's not a pet, it's an enemy. Paul developed an intense hatred for his sin, a hatred that grew right alongside his love for Christ. And those two things grow in parallel. You must learn to hate your sins as fiercely as your sin hates you. Your sin makes no bones about hating you and planning for your worst. It, it hates you and has a plan for your life. The reason indwelling sin still exerts power and influence over us is that we don't hate sin enough. We could also say we don't love Christ enough. But the reason you sin, the reason I sin, is we don't hate, despise our sin enough. The second way to fight the enemy within is to crucify it, kill it, put it, put it in all of its deeds to death. Just drive a stake right through that, the, the heart of that desire. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that main enemy, the self, you've got to kill. Your self-promoting self has to die. That's the enemy. Your self-worshipping, self-indulging, self-pitying self-focused self. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You and I must die daily to ourselves. We read that from the gospel lesson about taking up our cross and hating even ourselves and our lives because in every one of us, there is still a pushing of self to the forefront of our lives. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Fellow saints, we don't hate our lives nearly enough. We love our lives. We love ourselves. We're not willing to crucify our sins because we're not willing to take up our cross and crucify ourselves. Until we learn to hate our own lives in comparison to the life of Christ in us and through us, until we learn to hate our own lives, we won't be able to despise, hate our indwelling sin. Until we learn to die to ourselves, we won't be able to crucify the enemy within. But the problem with that, that all that's true, what I said. But we don't have the resources to do any of that on our own. We don't have the resources to fight the enemy in our own strength. 
we're, t- we're, we're too corrupted by the enemy to be able to defeat it. We're too wretched, too absorbed in self, too susceptible to sin's power, too mesmerized by what the flesh dangles in front of us. And so before, during, and after you mount that assault, and you must, but before, during, and after you mount an assault against the enemy within, you must be looking outside of yourself for help. You must look to Christ for that deliverance from the enemy that you need, that you will need until you die, and that you're looking forward to at the end. One reason Romans 7, 14 to 25 may be so difficult, at least for many to understand, is that it's one of the few places where Paul spends much time at all looking inside himself. Can I get a window into Paul's psychology? And yet, even in this passage, in this introspective passage, The gospel presents itself to us not while, Paul, not while Paul is looking inward, but while he's gazing on Christ. Did you notice that? Not in verse 14, but when I read the whole passage. What a wretched man that I am. That's his conclusion to this introspective exploration. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, he turns from himself in verse 25 to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As a rule, Paul gazed upon Jesus and he only glanced at himself. He gazed on Jesus, glanced at himself. We get in trouble when we get that backward, when we flip that around. If you're gazing on yourself, whether in the form of self-sufficiency, self-exaltation, self-pity, self-whatever, doesn't matter. If you're gazing on yourself, and your duty, and your failures, and your responsibility, and your strategies, your whatever, if you're gazing on yourself and only glancing at Christ, you are giving the enemy the upper hand from the get-go. You must look to Christ and the cross. That's where the power is. You must stand not in your own strength, but in the grace of God in Christ. You, you, your fortification comes by being rooted in, in Christ and His Spirit. I, I wasn't planning on reading this, but as we were singing it, it struck me. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? So if, we, if, it, was, if it was up to us and our strength, our, strength, our striving would be losing. We would lose every time. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He, Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. He must win the war and the battles against the enemy within. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we cannot stand against the enemy within on our own and so prevent us from striving in vain, from striving in self-sufficiency and losing. We thank you that we have victory in Jesus, that the victory is ours, and that the victory will be complete one day 
when sin is completely eradicated. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day when you will deliver us, will rescue us from this body of death. And we ask that even now, even today, and, and this week, that you would continue, that the Spirit in us would continue his work of killing the sin in us, making us more like Jesus, causing us to obey more and sin less. We need your help to do this. And so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.